Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. Real Estate Coaching Radio is the nation's number one daily radio show for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Get ready for fluff-free, unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what's truly working to get you into action, helping others, and making money now in today's real estate market. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. And welcome back to Real Estate Coaching Radio. Guys, we are going to be talking about a topic I know all of you will love, and this topic is real estate investing. This is something, it's got to be one of the top, I don't know, three to five questions we get. It was a it was a chapter, not a big chapter in Harris Rules. It was sort of the crescendo of the book. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're going to be drilling down on all the stuff that you guys need to know when you're deciding to become real estate investors. And we're going to approach this from a very, um, I'm not going to say basic because it's not really basic, but we're going we're gonna to approach this from an every man's perspective. We're going to share with you anecdotal stories about how Julie and I started investing in real estate, I don't know, 25 years ago and how other people have done the same thing. We're going to do our best to show you the path of least resistance to creating financial freedom, where you can be rich, where your money works for you and you no longer have to work for your money. We're gonna walk you through, uh, Julie created the content. Julie, am I setting the bar too high here? <laughs> no, uh, we're doing this in a very organized, systematic approach so that they can take it step by step. We're going to, and I'll just lay it out, we're gonna go from uh, specifics you need to know about your own financial situation because that's just good money, business, family, everything management before you go taking the potential risk. I mean, it's a risk. It's investment. In some cases, you're speculating. Um, but we're going from knowing about your own financial situation. Then why would you want to invest in certain types of, uh, whether it's commercial or multifamily, et cetera, then we're going to talk about how to go about it, and there's an element of how to get that type of loan and different ins and outs, and then where to find it. So we're going to walk them through a series of podcasts that will get them there, and then they can make good decisions. So the series of podcasts are going to be note takers for sure. Julie, how long have you spent putting this together? I mean, just in a condensed, presentable format. It's been what three weeks, maybe maybe a month. Yeah, about three weeks. You I'm know, still polishing a lot of it. So you know, it's it's there's a lot to it. it some of it's a little analytical, some of it's financial. Um, you know, as for the most part, our listeners are residential agents, and finding things that are a little bit off the menu takes more research. And so, you know, it's it's going to be a little bit of work, but we'll get them there. And it's something everybody's so asking we, for, so we have to deliver on that. That's right. So we started with two premises. Number one is that you guys want to be rich, where your money works for you, you no longer have to work for your money. We started with a premise that you want to wake up in the next three to five years where you have enough money coming in every single month from your cash-flowing real estate that if you chose not to, you know, prospect, if you chose not to go to a listing appointment, if you chose not to sell show a buyer, you know, a house in two feet of snow, you wouldn't have to. The wouldn't have to part is the rich part where your money works for you. You no longer have to work for your money. So we're going to show you the same thing we've, you know, we've shown our own personal coaching clients for the past forever. Most of them have followed this process. We have had people, when we have this conversation on our podcast or when Julie and I present this live, we've had lots of people come up to us that are in their fifties and they'll say things like, I wish I would have done exactly what you guys would have said back when I got into business. Um, so here's the thing I want all of you to open your minds to. So number one, I assume that you all want to move towards, uh, 
having that financial freedom, being rich. Don't have the word rich, you know, don't take that with any political context or try not to run any sort of, you know, socially approved, politically correct filters through that word. Just think, just simplify it. Rich is where your money works for you. You no longer work for your money. And number two, the other thing that we know is that very few residential real estate agents actually invest in real estate. And I don't think they don't invest in real estate because they don't want to be rich, but because they have the lack of knowledge or confidence. There's always the litany of reasons why someone will not want to purchase rental properties. And we're going to kind of nail every single one of those excuses. So at the end of this series of podcasts that we're going to do, you guys will feel incredibly confident. And you'll feel, frankly, like, oh, my gosh, I should have done this already. So that's the approach you should take, one of optimism, one of, um, you know, interest too. Be, have this be something that will help you realize that really getting to that point of being rich, using our definition so that it's simplistic, that is something that all of you can achieve, not in a lifetime, not when you're ready to retire, not in a billion years, not in whatever, whatever, but three to five years. Because this plan that we're going to give you is designed to work fast. Um, you know, the maximalist approach to everything is what we're doing, which means you you apply everything to get the to get the result as quick as, as possible. That's really our approach with coaching. That's our approach. That's the reason we have on this podcast. It's in our coaching programs. It's fluff free. And on this podcast where we're talking about investing, it's also going to be fluff free. We're just going to cut to it and tell you guys exactly what to do. What you do with this information after we give it to you is is it's up to you. But at least we'll have demystified the process of going about. Um, getting to that point where you are financially independent. So, Julie, we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's skip our yeah. usual preamble and jump right in. What do you okay. say? No worries. Yeah, and I think there's a nice byproduct with this too, which is it will help them deal with their own investor clients, which sometimes they just refer off because they're not comfortable with it. They don't have the education or the backbone to deal with it. So kind of covering two bases with us. So we're going to start out today with five money numbers that you must know about yourself before you invest. So yes, as Tim said, this is a note-taking type of podcast. So let's start out with number one, your net worth. Yes, that's right. We're going to actually talk about money with you. I know that you don't get that a lot of other places, but that's why we're doing it. So your net worth. Do you know what it is? How do you figure it out? Well, let's do it. Add up your assets. What are your assets? Those are your bank account balances, balances in your retirement and investment portfolios, equity in your home based on today's pricing minus whatever you may owe on your mortgage or other liens on your home, equity in rental properties you've already got based on today's pricing minus any liens, and equity in any other items like paid off cars or things of that nature. Maybe you've got some other businesses or other investments, okay? So those are your assets. Then you're going to, so that's one number. You can figure all that out when you are off of this podcast, add it all up, you'll have a number. Then you're going to add up what you owe, consumer debt like credit cards, student loans for some of you, tax liens, personal loans, anything you owe on, whether you have an interest rate on it or not, what do you owe? Okay. Then you subtract your debts from your assets, and that equals your net worth. Now, why are we doing this? You've got to know what that number is. Is it positive or negative? Is it trending up or down? Are you diversified or are you dependent just on one asset class? Maybe the only thing you've got is the equity in your house. Maybe you have a lot of rentals, but you don't have any other investments. Maybe you've been in the stock market, but never bought a rental. So where is it parked? And what effect can you have on either paying off debt or growing your assets or both at the same time? 
to time I wrote down the action step after they've done all this math, is to use mint.com to track all of your debts as well as your assets. They're going to calculate your net worth on a daily basis once you've got those numbers plugged in. And really, it only takes about an afternoon for you to get that going. So you can track how you're doing literally on a daily basis. Anything you want to add to that, you know, we're starting out with numbers they've got to know before they jump into investing. No, I mean, I was actually um, reading ahead on your notes, and Mint.com is a very, you know, it's perfect because it actually syncs with TurboTax or QuickBooks. So if you're doing your own taxes or you're having your accountant do your taxes, it's great. And it also pulls in like all the information from all your credit cards. So it'll pull in the micro data. It'll pull in, um, you know, what your charges that occurred that day or just interest that you may be paying on a credit card that you weren't aware of. And, you know, we've caught credit card companies um, you know, we run things through a credit card for our business and we'll see them, you know, they'll, the pay cycle isn't really 30 days to get your, the balance paid off. The pay cycle is really, you know, 22 days. Oh, and they changed their terms and conditions now it's 18 days and Mint will tell you. So Mint's a great financial watchdog for all of you guys to have. Um, I want to preface something that Julie just said. It's really important. A lot of you will account a uh, piece of real estate with a mortgage on it as an asset. And technically it is. So if you had a you know a million dollar property that you own 900 grand on it, technically you own a million dollar asset. But for the sake of what we're doing here, we'd like you to think of the equity in the property as what you actually own. In other words, how much money you actually have in the property would be maybe the more sober way of looking about how to do a net or uh, your net worth. You can do it both ways. It makes you feel better to do the, do it the other way. But realistically, we're trying to look at the 900,000 that you owe on it doesn't do you any good. The money that you have as an equity in it that's going to hopefully you know turn into positive cash flow when you get a tenant in there or whatever. That's what you're going to be able to base your financial freedom on, not money that you owe. So we're just trying to you know balance it out both ways. I know technically the way we're asking you to do it for many of you is going to be too conservative, but that's fine because people love to brag about the fact I have thirty million dollars of uh, real estate. Well, that's fantastic. I heard somebody, <laughs> I heard somebody, uh, a sales trainer actually. He was talking about the fact that he owns six hundred million dollars worth of investment property. Okay, well. How much do you owe on that $600 million? You know, something like $550 million. Okay, so of the $550 million that you, uh, the, I'm sorry, of the $50 million equity that you actually have in the property, how much of that really is yours versus all of your partners? And then it gets down to it. It's like, you know, three or four million. So, he, but he wants to talk about owning $600 million of the real estate. But when you look at what his actual equity in it, it's like, you know, not that great. I mean, by comparison, but man, it sounds cool to say $600 million, doesn't it? So start thinking uh, like a, uh, you know, a real business person versus a lot of this, you know, statistical stuff that people like to use just to puff themselves up. So just throwing that in there, again, trying to bring, bring a practical, tactical uh, approach to, uh, you know, becoming rich. Next point, Jules. Yes. Excellent point. Okay. Now, there's a lot to this one too. It doesn't sound like it, but some of this is right out of your real estate treasure map. I think elements of this are also in the Harris Rules book, so it should be familiar, but we're going to drill down on it. Income. That's the second money number you have to be clear on. Do you understand your personal income trends, needs, and requirements for financial success? Do you feel like your income is random and dependent on the moods of the real estate gods, or are you earning with a purpose based on your goals? Time to figure it out. What is your actual income versus what you need it to be? Now, here's a little secret, a little caveat. 
Most agents, and people in general, earn only what it takes to pay for their basic needs. This is why agents get into trouble at tax time because they didn't budget for it. It's also why real estate agents often feel they're living from paycheck to paycheck or groups of paychecks to groups of paychecks, closings. So we're going to use a formula to know what you really need to earn your, and achieve your personal business, family, and financial goals. So get your pencils sharpened, part one, monthly. We have part A, your personal overhead. And we're just talking right now about stuff you have to pay your rent or your mortgage, your car payment, your groceries, your insurance, putting gas in your car, all of your basic needs, that's part A, your personal overhead. Don't guess. When we do this with coaching clients and we really drill down, you guys tend to guess fairly close, but can also be off by a couple of thousand dollars for some of you, okay? So figure it out, get into your checkbook, look at your actual personal overhead. Okay, this is your family overhead because we're going to subtract any outside income in a second. Then we've got your business overhead, your absolute have-tos, your MLS dues, paying for your real estate signs, home brochures, all of that kind of thing, business overhead. Then we've got uh, letter C, fun. This is the money necessary for you to accomplish your fun goals this year. If you skip this category, you won't have any fun because if it's not planned for, it's not going to happen. That's like vacations, doing fun stuff to your house. Um, shopping, whatever turns you on, fun money, actually build it into the budget. Then we have D, and I know I'm going quickly through this because again, you can find this in the real estate treasure map and you can find it in the Harris Rules book. Taxes, add up A, B, and C and just add 20% as a general rule of thumb. Some of you pay more, some of you pay less, but 20% will allow you to have some level of preparedness for your tax bill. And then E, <clears throat> excuse me, savings, all real estate agents say, I want to save more, okay? But decide how much more. Is that a dollar? Is it $100? Is it six months of reserves? A good place to start is at least 90 days of personal and business savings. If you already have that, work on having at least a year of reserves. If you have that, make it five years. Then you're going to add up these numbers that you just did, A, B, C, D, and E, and it's going to give you your income required to earn per month. Then you subtract any outside income. This could be your spouse's regular salary, could be non-real estate income. It could be uh, income that's consistent from your rentals. And you're going to get the difference. So you do the income required minus the outside income. Some of you don't have any outside income. That's okay. And it's going to give you what you must earn per month. Now, you're going to multiply that by 12, and that will tell you what you need to earn yearly. That's keeping it real. Am I going too fast on this, Tim? It's important. Oh, it's perfect. And by the way, dry. <laughs> Go ahead. For those of you who have not completed the real estate treasure map, we give that to you for free. A lot of what Julie is going over is drilled down in, um, I think, it's section two of the real estate treasure map. And uh, again, you can go to freecoachingcallsforagents.com, freecoachingcallsforagents.com, and you're given actually five books, and real estate treasure map is one of them. And you're also entitled to a free coaching call with one of our new member coaches. Go ahead, Jules. Yes, perfect. So now that we've figured out what you have to earn based on what you want to do in life, part two is what's actually going on with you. You're going to write down the amount of your average net commission. Average net, your net is what's left after your broker splits, fees, etc. If you're not sure, ask your broker. Most of them track this for you. If you're a new agent and you don't have an average, find out the average sale price in the area that you work and use the average net commission based on how you're set up with your broker. You've got to use something. Okay, again, net commission is what you keep after broker fees, processing fees, transaction fees, all the rest. 
Now you're going to take the amount that you've got to earn per month and divide it by your average net commission. This is going to tell you how many transactions you've got to do monthly to cover your personal business savings fund and tax requirements. Take your amount needed per month divided by your average commission. That equals X number of deals monthly. And of course, you can multiply that by 12 to tell you how many deals you need yearly. Okay? So that's figuring out the brass tax. Part three, this is reality. I am currently averaging blank deals per month. Some of you are doing well more than necessary, and that's why we are thinking about these investment strategies. And that's fantastic. Some of you are not averaging what you need to not just get by, but to thrive yet. Okay? So you're going to be honest with yourself. This does, does or does not cover my personal business savings taxes and fund based on your current averages. I am or am not satisfied with continuing to earn at this level. You've got to decide. Okay, so that's a whole big section on your income number. If you're not clear on that, I'm not sure the whole investment conversation is something you should be getting into just yet. Just keeping it real. Okay, and again, we're taking a somewhat fiscally conservative approach so that you guys make the best decisions. Anything you want to hover on there, Tim, before we get to number three? Nope, keep going. We're good. Perfect. So the third money number for you to know is your credit score. Understand your credit score. Experian, this is for you and for dealing with your clients, by the way. This is basic stuff you've got to be clear on. Understand your credit score. Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax are where your FICO score comes from. You can get your score. Again, don't guess at it. Make sure you know. Freecreditscore.com. You can also use annualcreditreport.com for free reports from all three bureaus. You're going to look for errors, wrong names, addresses, maybe you know certain account numbers are wrong. They screw things up all the time. So monitor your credit regularly. Your score determines how much you can borrow and at what interest rate. Now, some of you <coughs> excuse me, sorry, I couldn't get my mute quick enough. Some of you believe that checking your own credit hurts your credit. That's not true. I checked that out five different ways before I put that into this podcast. Checking your own credit does not hurt your credit. That's called a soft check, and you're not hurting yourself by doing that. Fact, your credit score determines how much you can borrow at what rate, at which down payment requirements. This applies to real estate purchases, insurance, cell phone contracts, car leases, everything. So you've got to know. Whatever your opinion is on credit, and I could probably do five podcasts just on the ins and outs of weird things that affect your credit, but I won't bore everybody. I'm going to do a tiny bit of that now, but what impacts your credit? You have to know what's going on with it. So what has high impact? Credit card utilization. This is how much of your available credit you're using at any given time. It's determined by dividing your total credit card balances by your total credit card limits. Now, there's, here's something that's kind of counterintuitive. Most of the credit bureaus recommend that you keep your utilization below 30%. And I have read that it's actually better to have a 30% utilization than to actually have everything paid off because that sometimes can affect your credit. They will argue with you that, well, you've got all this available credit, look at how much trouble you could get into. Again, I could go on, the credit thing is a tangled web, but general belief on credit from the different credit bureaus in my research is keep it below 30% utilization. Lower credit utilization rates suggest that, they, that you use your credit responsibly. So I won't go on about that too much. Part it's three, worth mentioning, though, Joe, Joe, 
ahead. Jules, yeah. if they were to use Mint to keep all their financial stuff in one place, uh, Mint does give you free access to your credit report. And they update it every time your credit report's updated, every time your score is updated. So again, that's the nice thing about Mint. It keeps everything in one place. And no, we're not sponsored by Mint. Yeah. We just like the service that no. we provide. Well, we use them. We like them. A lot of our coaching clients like them. The cool thing about Mint, though, is that you don't have to be the one continuously inputting all that data. It pulls it out on its own every single day. You just have to hit update, and it does it for you. So there's not a lot of heavy lifting there. Okay, so part B, payment history. This is things that, that affect your credit. Your payment history is represented as a percentage showing how often you've made on-time payments. Paying bills on time, obviously, shows lenders and creditors you're reliable and more likely to pay back your debts. Late or missed payments absolutely significantly harms your credit scores, so it's important for you to pay all of your bills on time, obviously. Okay, so number uh, C, derogatory marks. As of July 1st, 2017, about half of all tax liens and civil judgments have been removed, little known fact, from consumers' credit reports. That's good news because those derogatory marks have lowered people's credit. However, other things that are not tax liens and civil judgments can still affect in the same way, right? So collections, bankruptcies, foreclosures, that kind of thing. Now, let's move on to medium impact, and then we'll get off of credit here in a second. The age of your credit history. This is how long you've been managing your credit. It has nothing to do with your actual age. It's the age of your credit. So the average age of your accounts is not the most important factor used for your credit, but it is a factor. It's a mid-range rating of what affects your, your credit. So closing your oldest credit card account can actually hurt your credit because it affects your credit history. This causes you to have to think about when you pay things off whether to keep those cards open or not. So the longer you manage your credit responsibly, the more you demonstrate your credit, credit worthiness to lenders. As a backup plan, just pay your bills on time, have a 30% or less utilization of your credit cards, and keep your credit history going. We're big fans of being debt-free. All of our coaching clients will tell you that, but there's also an advantage to continuing a history of your credit. Because in some cases with these investments, as we get into this discussion, you may want to have a 50% payment. You may want to finance more than that. You're going to need your credit. You're going to need to know about your credit. So point number four, in terms of our numbers we've got to know, savings. What do you have saved for A, reserves, B, emergency, C, for your taxes, D, for investment, and E, possibly for college. One of the biggest mistakes, Tim, that IC agents make is that commingling of their savings, like their reserves, with what they're saving for taxes. And what that does is it messes up their outlook of what's, what's truly saved for taxes. So they'll dip into it to a rainy day fund, and the tax bill will be due, and you know you didn't really have that segregated. That tax 20% minimum that we recommend you peel off of every commission check, remember that that is not your money. That is not your actual reserves. That's, you know, so, the tax authority's actual reserves. Jules, you don't get, I'm, look, I'm looking at your notes, you don't get into talking about uh, corporate structures for the real estate practices, do you? Not on this outline, no. But okay, that's a good so thing to, to you want, jump into, because that's important too. Yeah, well, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. So, Talk to your accountant. We're not accountants, CPAs, or attorneys. But generally speaking, with the new tax laws, you're going to be better off, we think, and we're researching this ourselves. But the old way of holding, first of all, all of you guys should incorporate. Every one of your, uh, you know, if you're a broker, obviously you're incorporated. But agents should incorporate as well. 
Um, your broker should be paying your corporation. Your corporation should be paying you payroll. Now, we don't need to get into the weeds. You're, you know, some of you guys are saying, well, my income's not consistent enough. The payroll can be a, a small amount. The benefit of basically having your broker pay you or pay your corporation is that you then are going to uh, pay less ultimately in taxes. There's, though it's not the actual name of it, the self-employed taxes, it does not have to be paid by you. If you're employed by a corporation, even if you're the sole shareholder in said corporation. The other thing it's nice about uh, running it that way is you will be forced to have a certain level of uh, financial uh, responsibility because if you use paychecks or some payroll company, they're going to take out from whatever money you tell them to pay you, you're going to take out taxes, state taxes, whatever federal taxes, you're going to be forced to set aside money every single month for that, uh, the tax payments, which will help all of you guys, frankly, have a lot more financial responsibility. The other thing that's nice about that is it does, oddly enough, make it so that you have more financial sobriety. I keep on using that word because so many of us basically have no financial sobriety. We're just basically like crazy college freshmen who've never been out of the house before, just discovered beer, you know, more is better. And in, in other words, more spending and who cares about debt? There's always tomorrow. And some people have a lifestyle that way for financial, uh, for their financial lives. And that's the reason, one of the reasons they never really get ahead. So when you're setting your entity up there, I think that the new way of doing it is going to be set yourself up as a C corp. And then uh, the old way of doing it was setting yourself up as an S-Corp, and the S-Corp was just basically a pass-through. The new way, I believe, again, we're working on this ourselves, and you should do the same thing, is having your entity, whatever you want to call it, be a C-Corp. Now, do you need to set the entity up in the state in which you reside? No, you do not. You can set up the entity in Nevada. You can set the entity up in any state you want to. Um, but generally speaking, it's going to be easier if you set it up in your state. The one question you should ask before you hire an accountant or an attorney to set this up is how much are they going to charge to set up the entity and what are the ongoing expenses for the corporation? Some states are not very competitive. It, you know, you'll be required to have a whole bunch of extra filings and reporting and your, your entity, your corporation will end up actually costing you thousands of dollars a year just to set up. Um, now, the other reason you want to be doing a corporation is it does provide some level of asset protection. Um, and again, this is something we'll talk about in an upcoming show. But an entity is designed because it is it, to be it has an asset protection. It is an asset protection vehicle, and that it is a thing. So you're working for this corporation, and if your corporation, through your efforts, were to get into some kind of trouble, they'd sue the corporation. They wouldn't necessarily have to sue you. Now you want to make sure your broker. And again, I'm not going to talk about asset protection, but you want to make sure your broker has sufficient errors and emissions insurance, and the errors and emissions insurance has on its policy covering your corporation. If your broker does not have sufficient errors and emissions insurance, you might want to consider getting that yourself. It's really not that expensive. As you add properties, never buy a property or close in a property in your name. Even if you take a loan out on it, you can still close in a corporation's name. Every single property you guys buy as you add these should be in its own corporation, not in your name. And do not make the mistake of putting multiple properties in the same corporation. The reason is, is because let's say, after you guys listen to this, you're all motivated and you buy five rental properties and you're lazy and you, or you get bad advice and you put them all in the same corporation. Well, let's say 123 Elm Street, the one you buy tomorrow, someone slips and falls or who knows what, something happens. And then what happens is they can sue you um, and they can go after the equity in the corporation. If the equity is holding five different properties, you got, I'm sorry, if the asset is holding, the LLC is holding five different assets, sorry, 
That means that they can hypothetically sue for the equity in all five properties, whereas if you have each property in its own corporation, then it's protected. And again, I'm going to go back to what I said before. Don't just assume your state is the best state to form the corporation, and it's probably not. We have all of our corporations formed in states where, frankly, it's the least expensive and has the best protection, which is Nevada. And you guys can do the same exact thing. Tons and tons of information online about this. Nothing illegal, nothing nefarious. It's just boom, business setup. That's how you do things. That's the reason that a lot of big corporations have um, branches in Nevada for the same type of thing, because the corporate laws are, are, frankly, less onerous to small business owners like you guys are. All right, so we're going to pick up where we left off yesterday, left off today, tomorrow, and we're going to be talking more about how you can actually get into motion purchasing properties. The big takeaway from today's show is that you guys can do this. You can get the ball rolling. We're going to show you how you can generate the down payments, usually from your commissions. We're going to show you how you can sometimes use owner financing for your down payments. We realize that, you know, the first hurdle is the, you know, getting over the fears of actually doing it. Now, Let's assume that tomorrow we're going to move through the fears and the next thing's going to happen. Your next big hurdle is going to be, where do I come up with a down payment? We're going to help you with that. And here's the beautiful thing. A lot of our original investment properties that we bought and we sold real estate, we were able to roll the commission in. We'd list a property. You know, we'd, we'd end up, the seller said, I don't care who buys it. You know, whatever nets me the most. Julie and I wanted to buy it. It was a great property. We purchased the property. We would roll our commission into the property and that would act as part of our down payment. You following me? This is the reason why agents, every agent should have an appetite of buying at least two or three rental properties per year because you guys can create the down payment just from the transaction revenue. You following me on this? Now, the other thing is, is you can use a little bit of the owner's money. We did that once too. When Julie and I were in our early 20s and we wanted to buy a, a property, we didn't have enough down payment. You know, we, the owner owned it. We got him to hold a little second mortgage for us and we were able to, get a, we were able to close on it that way. And we'll walk you through how to do all of that. Then we're going to meander into how you go about, you know, starting with single families, then maybe you branch into double, uh, multifamilies. A lot of people are, it's almost like a, I don't know, religious zealots about only buying multi, multifamilies. Well, that's usually not the best fit for most folks. Most folks are going to be better off if they purchase single families for a whole bunch of reasons. The biggest one is that generally speaking, they're a heck of a lot easier to get rented and keep rented. So we'll be talking about that on the shows over the next couple of days. So make sure you guys tune in and listen. Listen, if there's anything we can ever do for you, remember, you can always email us directly, tim at timandjulieharris.com or julie at timandjulieharris.com. We are going to methodically go through every single point that you need to know to how to, how to purchase property. Through this information, by answering all your questions, you're going to discover motivation to go out and do it. Your next job is going to be to go identify a property, put one in contract, and go through the process and realize how frankly it easy, it easy it is. And, and next little thing, some of you guys are going to be motivated just from listening to us today. I'm going to give you a little, um, where a lot of you guys will find a high level of frustration is when you realize that in your marketplaces, rental properties, buying anything really doesn't make sense because you cannot get it to cash flow. In other words, the rents are so far out of whack what the property values are. Most of the coastal properties are like that. We don't buy properties in markets like that. You know, we don't buy properties in California, for example, because you can't really cash flow them. You get little, you know, two and three percent returns on investments. So our suggestion to you is you look outside of your market. I know some of you are going to run into a big, you know, fear wall about, oh, my gosh, managing it and all that. We'll, we'll help you work through all that. It's not a big deal. But look in Charlotte, North Carolina, look in Columbus, Ohio, look in north part of Atlanta, look in Indianapolis, Indiana, look in all these places where the big institutional investors are purchasing.
um, you know, there's three or four hedge fund backed massive companies that are purchasing properties in these what have been called traditionally second and third tier markets. And they are uh, buying these properties because they're able to get seven, eight, nine, 10% cash on cash return. With a mortgage, uh, you guys would still be able to get probably six or 7% return. All the while the property is appreciating, all the while you're able to depreciate it, all the while you're getting cash flow, depending on your down payment. You guys with me on all this? So if you're, if you basically are trying to be a skeptic about becoming a real estate investor, a long-term buy and hold real estate investor, this is not, um, you know, we're not doing shows here on, uh, on uh, flipping. We're doing it on investing. Investing is the best time to uh, sell a cash flowing property is never. Okay. You know, you don't, the people that flip are the people that need the cash flow. Well, you want to get yourself to the point where you don't, when you find a great property where you have equity, where you're able to, let's say, fix it up a little bit and you're able to get it rented out and it's something you're really proud of. Why would you sell that? You hold that thing forever and it becomes a long-term asset for you. And that's how you create long-term wealth. We're going to show you how to walk through all that um, on the next few shows. So guys, listen, as always, Tim at timandjulieharris.com or Julie at timandjulieharris.com. You guys have a fantastic day. We'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.